Hi, this is Albert. And this is Luke. Today is Thursday, the 7th of November. Welcome to the Telescope Investing Podcast. Albert, we've got a great interview coming up today. But before we introduce our guest, we'd like to thank our subscribers for listening and supporting the show. You know, Albert and I run Telescope Investing for you. And we're just over a year in and we're still very much in growth mode. And one of the best ways you can lend your support to the show is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And we only mentioned Apple reviews last week and we've already received a couple of five-star reviews. So a massive thank you to all the listeners that took the time to leave a comment. Yeah, thanks guys. Well, with that, let's get on with today's show. And I've got to say, I've really been looking forward to today's guest episode for well over a month now. Albert and I are delighted to introduce Prantik Mazumdar an award-winning entrepreneur and venture capital investor. Welcome, Prantik. Hey, Luke. Hey, Albert. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I've been looking forward to this as well. I've been listening to some of the episodes on Spotify. That's where I catch my podcast. And I must say, it's pretty interesting just to get a good lens and perspective on investing opportunities out there across different baskets of equities. And I thought it provided me a good, fresh perspective. So looking forward to our conversation today. Fantastic. Very good. And just to let you know, Prantik, I also have been looking forward to this interview for a while. So why don't we get started? Can you tell us a bit about yourself and perhaps how you got into VC investing? Sure. So my journey, it's probably split across three countries. I'm an Indian, raised in India for the first 13 years, spent about six years doing my high school in Jakarta in Indonesia, and then last 20 years in Singapore. And in Singapore, the 20 year story is broken into probably three or four pieces. I start post my university where I studied computer engineering. That's the place where I kind of fell in love with technology. Although I quickly realized that whilst tech is pretty close to my heart, more than building technology, I was probably quite interested in marketing and selling technology. And I kind of then moved into the civil service. I, you know, Singapore government, as many of you would know, is probably more, operates more like a private enterprise. So I had a good three and a half years of experience as a young officer to help local enterprises internationalize. So I was on the other side of the fence, facilitating investment conversations, both into the startups, as well as facilitating M&A opportunities for Singapore startups and telecom operators in different parts of the world, Asia, outside Asia, etc. So that gave me my first preview into the world of investor, but purely, merely as a observer. Uh, and then I had a couple of stints as the head of sales, regional sales for A, a brand consulting company and B, a digital marketing company. So that's where I kind of got my hands dirty into brand building and digital marketing. And even as a employee, I figured the importance of investment. Now, investment is a very large world. Most of us think of investments purely from public markets, but I saw how private investments work because some of these companies raise money. I also saw about looking at investments in the softer side of things, investments into talent, because you know we all operate in the knowledge economy. And thereafter came my journey as an entrepreneur. I co-founded a company called Happy Marketer. Rachit and I, who are classmates from NUS, we started this in June 2009 and over a decade we scaled this up. It's interesting. We did this without a single penny of investment. We are a pure services company. So we realized pretty early that no VC is going to look at services business. It's not deemed to be as scalable as the product companies. But you know, we stayed true to our roots and our belief that the best form of investment is client revenue, creating products and services that clients are willing to open their wallets for 
nothing like it. So we were very fortunate early in the game. Uh, we ran this company for 10 years, grew it from zero to $10 million in billings. And in February 2019 is when we exited and we sold this company to a Japanese conglomerate called Denso. And during that process, we got a flavor of investments from the other side where a larger conglomerate invested into us and you know acquired the company. And that was fascinating, the whole due diligence process, uh, looking at narrative, as well as looking at the roadmap, protecting future jobs, etc. And then when I kind of, you know, came out of that, I mean, I still lead Denso Internationals, one of their business units in Singapore. That's my core job. But once I kind of came out of the happy marketer founder role, that's when I, for the first time, started investing as we talk about the word investing, investing into markets, investing into the startup ecosystem in Southeast Asia or broader Asia, investing into VCs and PEs. So, you know, I'll take a pause there, but that's essentially my journey. The word investment has had so many different flavors, be it the government investment perspective to SMEs, to running my own startup, to eventually getting investments into that company through an M&A opportunity. And finally, wearing the hat of a angel investor or a venture investor, if you will. That's really fascinating. And I guess it's quite a unique advantage you've got. You've had the opportunity early to lead venture capital deals, but with somebody else's money, you know, you're not bearing the risk. Then to be a founder and see that journey from the other side, and now to be an opportunity to invest your own money, you've come at this with much more experience than most venture capital investors would have. Well, uh, time would tell if all that really adds up to something. But yes, I, I'm definitely fortunate to get just different perspectives. I think especially what I realize now, now that I've been investing actively into ventures is I think having a founder perspective really helps because it's not just a monetary investment. You really, really think about the market. You think about the people, the team, the culture, even small things in the Asian economy. You think about being prudent as well. The venture market is rather hot. The market's flushed with cash. But I think sometimes being a founder, especially from an Asian ecosystem perspective, you are trained to, I'm not saying to kind of cut costs, but be prudent with your expenditures and investments and be a bit more both a short-term and a long-term perspective. Uh, so Prantik, so what does your typical day look like? What do you actually do as a VC investor? I like to keep my weekends pretty protected for my kid and my wife. But I think on the weekday, I wake up fairly early. That's been a big change. I, I, I'd want to start my day early just to kind of uh, get some time to reflect. I hit the gym as well. And then I kind of just start thinking about, you know, planning the day. My day job is still, like I mentioned, very much at Denso International. So I kind of use a lot of my time to kind of just set the day, set the direction, delegate whatever tasks that I can. But thereafter, from an investment lens, I think what I've done is in my week, I've kind of blocked some pockets of time, two to three half day pockets where I spend time meeting new companies or meeting companies that I've met before, but you know, who are doing something new. So to me, I think what really, really excites me is, and this has been true even in my past avatars, because you know, back then my objective was to sell. Uh, or to market my own services. But I've just taken that skill set of networking and you know being curious and being open with a venture lens where every week I try and at least have a call or a physical meeting if possible with at least four or five new companies. Just that listening keeps me fresh. I have a framework of questions that I try and kind of ask them just to kind of gather a perspective of what stage they are in, what companies, you know, what products, what kind of culture are they trying to kind of build. But to your question, I think from an early stage investor, I think to me so much is about a meeting new companies b spending time to kind of just dig deeper in the evenings and nights about those industries because of course you know i, 
get excited when I meet these companies, think of new solutions and products. But I think it's also important to just calm down and take a look at as to, okay, what does competition look like? You know, what are some of the indirect competition out there? And then also look at the broader industry trends and numbers. So yeah, that's a bit of my week. I start early, uh, you know, get my gym and my breakfast done focus on my core role at Denso and then set aside some pockets of time to meet people and then kind of reflect about learnings from that industry. Four to five different companies a week. That's pretty intense. I saw a hilarious tweet actually yesterday that some founders are now charging VCs for a meeting just to have the opportunity to chat. I'm not surprised. I, like I said, the market's flush with cash. I heard a similar case where a very large VC, I wouldn't name uh, name them, but I'm sure it's out in the market that they call the founder and say, hey, what's the term sheet that you've got from an existing VC? I'll double it at a better equity. I won't take a board seat. I'm not sure whether that's really very, that's healthy or that's sustainable or that's good. If I was to raise money, yes, I would choose a good valuation, but I would definitely want good people to come along with me on that journey. What I've learned is that be it as advisors, mentors, or as strategic investors, I think the value of a few people kind of providing check and balance, governance, opening doors, networking, bringing credibility is paramount. But yeah, I kind of relate to that tweet that you came across. It definitely sounds like a good time to be a founder. Actually, which sectors are you seeing the most exciting opportunities at the moment? Yeah, so I think, you know, it depends on the geographical segments. Having grown up in this part of the world, the three markets closest to my heart are, you know, India, Singapore, Indonesia. And these three markets are extremely hot right now. And Singapore, I was obviously lived here for the last 20 years. I've seen a, a drastic change, especially in the last five, seven years. I think I just read a report that I think we probably have some close to 30 odd unicorns right now. And it's insane. Bulk of them have been minted just in the last 12 to 18 months. So if I look at this region, Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, people don't realize that, yes, there are 10 fragmented countries, but collectively that's a population base of about 600 million, right? Of course, there is no unified currency or uh, no unified trading block like EU. But to me, I have a pretty strong conviction about this market. Within this market, I think the markets that uh, really excite me are Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam. Uh, Singapore, purely given that it's it's the financial capital of this part of the world, extremely high per capita income, extremely good connections to the region. Indonesia, population-wise as well as innovation-wise, you know, people in the West might have heard of companies like Grab, Gojek, Tokopedia, Bukulapak. These have all emerged in the recent past, right? So Indonesia, Singapore, Vietnam, if I just zoom in, the sectors that are really hot, fintech, needless to say, insurtech's booming as well. A lot of logistics play, which is growing on the back of e-commerce. So e-commerce obviously has skyrocketed in the last five, six years, but if you want to really deliver e-commerce products, especially in fragmented geographies, you need very good logistics support. So that's kind of come into play as well. So I think we saw e-commerce and ride hailing really peak about four or five years ago, but as those services came into play, uh, you needed you know, financial services, you needed insurance services, you needed logistical services. So I think we are seeing a huge boom in B2B SaaS supporting these industries in these markets. India, of course, is a completely different story. Uh, the way companies are not just sprouting in different corners, not just the metro cities, but even in tier two, tier three cities. And I think in the last two, three years, it's caught the much deserved attention of Western VC. So SoftBank had come in early, but thereafter today, you have the likes of Tiger Global, you have Sequoia, you have Lightspeed and the likes, and they are pumping in some serious money into India right now. So that's, a again, a very different ballgame. Of course, there you're seeing EdTech. EdTech has been massive. You might have heard of a company called Baiju's, wherein even the Zuckerberg family is invested. And they have been 
are not just scaling up, they have been acquiring other edtech companies in liquid cash in hundreds of millions of dollars. So India is a very, very unique market in itself. So it depends on geography, but I think in Southeast Asia, fintech, insurtech, logistics tech is where the, the movement or the momentum is. I am beginning to see, especially in Singapore, a couple of sectors around sustainability, alternate meat, as well as clean energy, because this is something that's very close to the Singapore government's heart. And Singapore has a 10-year-long plan called the 2030 Green Plan. And as part of that, the Singapore government is inviting startups and founders to set up base here. Uh, so for example, JustX, their base now is uh, Singapore. And then Singapore stays true to its word through its sovereign wealth fund like the Masek. They actually invest a lot of money into these uh, sustainable industries. So again, maybe a bit futuristic, deep tech, sustainable tech. But I dare say in the next 10 years, you will start seeing a lot of companies mushrooming in those domains. It is a little bit futuristic, but not 100 miles away, right? These are things that are going to transform the world in the next five to 10 years. I know Albert's very keen on the whole sustainable meat sector, but actually just to pick up on your comment on ed tech. I think that's fascinating, and particularly as companies like Starlink start to connect remote parts of the world, there will be a huge number of very, very smart people out there who are mostly held back because they don't have access to education sources and you know, even free tools like Khan Academy and YouTube. Giving the next billion and the next billion after that people access to these resources could potentially unlock another hundred Einsteins out there. Oh, very well said. Uh, and this is a sector, I mean, you know, edtech and health tech are two sectors very close to my heart because my wife's a doctor. So obviously health is very close to her heart. To both of us, education and health, these are core aspects of our lives. And if you look back, I think they've been extremely fortunate, both of us, simply because to put it bluntly, the dice rolled on the right side. And, you know, we got good education and we got access to good healthcare. And it's not just about, you know, I'm, I must be clear, it's not about being charitable. This is good business opportunity commercially and doing good, right? It's, it's what they call force for good and force for growth, right? It's not either or, right? It's not a false choice. And you're right. I think A, at a fundamental level, whether it's Starlink, whether it's Geo in India, fundamentally the, the infrastructure problem, the mobile digital infrastructure problem has been tackled very well. Suddenly, you know, it's not far when uh, probably, you know, 80, 90% of India's population could have access to high-speed data, right? Now, if that's taken care of, then you have ad tech content providers, be it YouTube, be it TikTok, be it Baiju's, Khan Academy, what have you. You have free content and you have curated paid content, right? For something for everyone, so to speak. And then, of course, you have, you know, in India, there are so many interesting ad tech companies that are catering to K1 to K12, universities, there are companies that are financing education, like uh, I've invested in one company which looks at study now, pay later. It's taking the principles of buy now, pay later and helping people get access to good college and school education. And of course you have, you know, also support content and technologies, learning management systems, supporting teachers because, you know, without good teachers, especially in this part of the world, you have to contextualize, not just in terms of translation, but also contextualize the content that you're kind of using, right? And so you need to also look at the, the teaching side of the ecosystem and the administration. And there are tons of good startups in the broader ed tech space doing that. So I totally agree with you that the coming decade could be very exciting where hopefully, I don't know about Einstein's, that's a great desire, great wish. I just hope more people get basic 
you know, K-12 and college education. I think it will have very positive ramifications, not just academically, commercially, but also from a social perspective. You know, an educated society is what we all want to live in. Now, you mentioned that Singapore has this green initiative to support these businesses for a sustainable environment. I think other companies are also doing that as well. I believe China has also committed to be carbon neutral by 2060, I believe. I know that Hong Kong itself even recently has announced similar plans. What do you think that these are going to be a main driver for young businesses going forward? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I'm really glad that large governments, corporations, multilateral bodies are taking notice because, I mean, I at least come from the camp that this is yesterday's problem. It's not a futuristic problem. Climate challenges are real as far as I'm concerned. Linked to that, energy, sustainable food, these are all linked to it. So I think that it is a problem as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I think it's quite real and good to see China, Hong Kong, India and, you know, even Singapore, you know, taking it very, very seriously. So I, I kind of see two kinds of opportunities, right? So one is I'm seeing new technology startups spring up from these markets. For example, considering an investment into a green hydrogen generation startup from Singapore. They're basically going to produce hydrogen from water, right? And that clean hydrogen can be used for various industrial grade uh, applications, right? So that's the clean energy as an example. The other, for example, is alternate meat. I've done a few investments in JustX at a pre-IPO level. I've also invested in a, a VC fund from Singapore called Good Startup Fund, which only invests in alternate protein, right? So it's a VC fund that's going to invest in 25, 26 odd companies in the coming four years. There is a company that we service at Denso International. It's a Singapore-based alternate meat company called Float Foods. It's amazing. You should check it out. It's the world's first alternate protein company that's made a complete egg. So when I say complete egg, both the white and the yolk, if you look at it, it looks just like a egg. So it's not a liquid form like just eggs. It's like a real physical egg. It's runny. It tastes the same. It smells the same. The texture is very similar. And, uh, you know, you can mix it into your fried rice or your shakshukas and whatever, however you like it. Right. And all of this is cultivated and nurtured in a lab in Singapore. And you look at the impact of this, right? The reason these data points are important is because Singapore, I believe, consumes about 2 billion eggs a year for a population of just 5.5 million, right? And of that, about 5%, I believe, gets dumped into the ocean because they don't meet the quality threshold. So already there is a decent amount of wastage. B, a lot of egg is being consumed, right? And again, we know for certain cases, unless the eggs are of high quality, they can lead to hormonal issues or health issues. Now, these are natural, plant-based. So there's no hormone, there is no other substance, right? So you have a lot of positive impacts coming out of this. So to zoom out, there are a bunch of startups from these markets that are growing zero to one to solve specific energy, healthcare, sustainability related problems. The other is, which is to me more important, is the larger corporations and the investment community. We obviously have, all of us may have come across the news that BlackRock had issued the letter saying they're going to ensure that a decent amount of their portfolio have budgets of people allocated for ESG initiatives. We work with a lot of banks, insurance that have made similar commitments in the coming decade about reducing carbon footprint. I'm very proud to come from Densu, where Densu globally has made this a public listed company. They have made an announcement that, you know, we're going to basically go net zero. So I think it's important that whilst the startups and the investment community look at it from a zero to one perspective, but more than that, to be honest, we need the larger Fortune 1000 companies and their investors questioning them and literally institutionalizing the process and awareness of the ESG element. 
said, not as a checkbox, but to genuinely look at this, because I personally believe there is economic opportunity here. It's not just about doing good for the world as a charitable act. I mean, that's good enough in its own right. It's the world, the only planet that we live in, but there is massive economic opportunity here for us and the future generations. That same ethical investing lens really makes sense as a public markets investor too. If you really want to build conviction in a company, there's nothing like being passionate about their mission and feeling that your dollars are doing good in the world, as well as helping your own portfolio and your family. Well, I wonder if we could twist the conversation a little bit towards some of the more technical things and ways of operating as a venture investor. Albert and I do have a number of small cap investments ourselves. We do treat them differently and look at them differently to large cap stocks. Often we would give a small cap much more leeway, particularly around financials if they're in growth mode, maybe pre-revenues. As a VC investor, what kind of things are you looking for in a potential investment? Is it very different to an early stage stock? Yeah, it is. Because I think, you know, even if you're looking at small cap, the fact that they are listed means they already are of a particular threshold and size. They may be small in relative terms, but they are big enough to be listed on a market. And the very fact that they're listed on a market, which means they are regulated, there are reporting requirements, so on and so forth. As a venture investor, I typically look at pre-series A or pre-seed stage companies. And usually 90% of my portfolio is in post-revenue. So I haven't really invested in just a idea or just a PowerPoint presentation. Most of them are very much in some sort of a revenue scaling segment. I look at a bunch of factors when I look at companies in Southeast Asia, right? Because again, in the early stage market, it's hot, but it's relatively compared to the West, it's still nascent, so to speak. So I start by looking at the problem that they're trying to solve. How large is the problem set or how large is the problem size from a market size perspective? So I would sit with the founders to understand that how critical or important or large is the problem. Next, I'll kind of zoom into from that market, what's the addressable space? Because obviously the market could be a $10 billion market, but maybe they're only looking at solving for 5% of that market. And that's fine. At least you know where things stand. So once I analyze that, if that problem is close to my heart, if I have a good conviction about that market size, that's a check. Then I look at what's, in my opinion, what I call the founder problem fit. So there are good founders, but I think whilst the world talks a lot about product market fit, I think we need to zoom out and look at the founder problem fit before PMF. And that's simply because I could be a great founder, but I may not be a great founder for all industries or all problem sets. So to me, it's important to just make an assessment that if this is the founder or the founding team, how passionate is he or she or how credible or how capable is he or she for that specific problem? So that's the next bit. The third is to really look at the founding team dynamics, because again, generally I would like it. Again, I've come from a background where we were two or three founders at most points in time. It helps to have a co-founder because it's just too much of a risk or too much load on just one person, especially at that early stage. So I look at what the founding composition is. From my experience, what I really value is complementary skill sets, but aligned values. Also, what matters to me is the underlying equity structure and the vision of that founding team. Because for example, if, if, if the structure is 90-10, one founder has 90, the other has 10, doesn't seem very balanced, right? The second founder may not have too much skin in the game. Also, I, I would want to know their perspective on key staff. I'm a big believer that if you're going to be growing this venture for the next 7, 10, 15, 20 years, you need to have good staff, good people rallying around you. And I think that's where to me what matters is the ESOPs. There are many founders, unfortunately, in this part of the world who don't understand the ESOP game well. They want to be very controlling. They don't want to be very open with ESOPs. To me, that's a red flag. I rather that they at least 
carve out anywhere between 5 to 10% to begin with, just to ensure that there is a pool to kind of incentivize good stuff. There's a term I'm not familiar with. Could you break down ESOPs for us? Yeah. So ESOPs is basically options, employee stock options. You know, if I'm an early stage employee, and let's say I've left Google and I've joined you, you may not be able to afford my salary, but you give me some stock options to execute on. Of course, they come with caveats, like you've got to stay for, let's say, a minimum three to four years, or there are certain terms and conditions. And in the West, this is well institutionalized, but in this part of the world, it's just about beginning to happen. So that founder mentality matter a lot. And the next is, of course, you know, look, taking a look at the product, taking a look at the product market fit, which one can judge by not just revenue, but the quality of the revenue. I rather invest in a company which has just two clients, but there is recurring revenue than five clients, but none of them have repurchased from them. So I'm looking at small revenue, but stickiness in revenue. Uh, I'm looking at qualitative metrics like net promoter score. That just kind of gives you an indication that whatever little that they're doing, the customer is happy and they're coming back again. Of course, at that stage, I'm not keen and not looking at profits because most product companies would need a decent amount of runway before they can turn profitable. But I think these four or five elements are quite close to my heart when I look at an early stage company. Of course, I have a bit of bias towards serial entrepreneurs. People have done this before. Not to say that young first-timers can't do it, but I think I do value experience. If someone's done this before once or twice, they perhaps would not repeat the same mistake. They perhaps have a decent network network from their corporate career or from their previous startup and that might just make ramping up easier. And the last thing, you know, I have a philosophy at this is as they kind of scale, I look at a three R philosophy. Can the founding team raise capital? Can they race for growth? And can they remove competition? Because to me, if this company has to scale up, then you could be a good business, but that does not necessarily make you a good VC investable business, right? So for example, Happy Market, the services company that I ran, a very healthy business with profit margins anywhere between 35 to 50%, pretty good, happy as a founder. But does that necessarily make us a good VC investable business? Not really, because we're not a product company. Our growth is a function of people, right? And that's limited. So for a VC investable business, the mindset has to be scale and scale quickly in a you know structured manner, of course, in a predictable structured manner. And that's where the skill sets of being able to raise capital, raise for growth and remove competition comes in very handy. And I guess when you are invested in VC, you're always looking ahead to some sort of exit, whether that's for the company to grow and scale so quickly it becomes public or for it to have such a great product that it's an acquisition target. You get stuck as a venture capital investment as if you've got a really good, healthy, medium-sized business that generates revenues, but it never gets to that breakout point. Yeah, that's a good one. So, you know, uh, again, like I said, I, I probably wear two hats. Uh, one is an individual angel investor and the other is as a limited partner in existing VCs. I'll maybe share my perspective on both. As an angel investor, yes, there are some companies who, to be honest, if I draw a bell curve, there are companies that may eventually not succeed. They might just die a natural death. That's the part of the portfolio. Then there will be companies that are not rocket ships, but they do are doing decently. They're probably going to give us some dividends time to time. And we might have a okay exit, maybe if lucky between two to three X over some period of time. And that's fine. And then you're obviously rooting for those which could hopefully give you anywhere between five to 10 X. So yeah, you're right. It's a portfolio. Hence, anyone who's looking to get into angel investing, I would say, give yourself time, build your conviction, but use time and your knowledge and conviction to grow a portfolio of at least 10 to 15 companies. Because no matter how great a company may seem or a founder may seem, the odds are always stacked against them. 
as they say, only 10% of companies have a very good exit. So that's from an angel investor perspective. From VCs, which typically bulk of their capital is institutional money, I think the difference or the good thing is that their contracts are structured such that the downside is protected very well. The contracts are way more investor friendly and they generally use a portfolio approach as well, but they're generally rooting for the rocket ships, right? Which means typically they say that in a, in a fund, if you have, let's say 20 companies, chances are three or four companies will pay back the fund and the rest, whatever comes in is bonus because they are playing a long game. A VC life cycle can be anywhere between seven to 12 years. So in that seven to 12 years, their goal is to hopefully return three to five X of the total capital raise back to their LPs. So they are not really interested in dividends or small returns. They rather fight and push hard to get those one or two mega exits because that'll do the trick for them. I don't know if you spend much time on Twitter, Prantik, but we do. Probably too much time actually. And on Twitter, there seems to be a debate between concentration and diversification when it comes to stock portfolios. We at Telescope Investing firmly sit in the diversification camp. I think one reason why we do that is that you want to increase the chances of catching that breakout stock like a Netflix or Shopify or Tesla. And I get the feeling that because of the high risk nature of VC investing, that is how VC works as well. Is that the case? So yeah, there is diversification in every world. The question is, how diverse is your diversification? Uh, you know, for example, one can diversify by geography, size of company. Even if I look at my own portfolio, the whole portfolio is diversified fundamentally across cash, bonds, fixed income, public markets, in private markets, further reclassified into pre-IPO, uh, late stage or early stage uh, ventures, right? So by definition, there are about six or seven baskets. But I think diversification in terms of asset class, yes. Although even there, to me, it's not an equal split. I'm probably more bullish at this juncture towards the private side and the public side, very less on bonds and fixed income. So I'm more of a someone who's looking at holding specific companies. Like I've not done really too, much, too many mutual funds or ETFs. I'd rather have a conviction on an industry and a few companies and diversify within that. So what I'm trying to get at is yes, asset class diversification to me is important, but I think the common thread across all of that is I have invested most of it within those asset classes in two or three industries, which are being disrupted using technology. So if you look at my portfolio, if you open the hood across all asset classes, what you will see is technology as a common spine, either across education, healthcare, or finance. So to me, I think, yes, everyone has their own reasons and own flavor of diversification, but I don't think it's necessary to diversify because, you know, I think I forget whose quote that was probably, uh, you know, uh, I realize every time I forget a quote in the finance world, I tend to attribute it to Warren Buffett. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but something tells me I may be right in this case is that, you know, diversification for the sake of diversification is a sign of lack of intelligence. You're basically spraying and praying. And I think wrong with it. Then in that case, you hold the market, just buy S&P 500 and hold, nothing wrong with it. But I think if you want to really get into it, I would rather that everyone has a point of view or a conviction. And of course it can change periodically, hopefully not too short term, but every five, seven years, you want to back a trend that you believe in. So yeah, that's my take on diversification, not really randomized diversification, but choose two or three industries and then maybe diversify through asset class. How many VC investments would you normally make, say, in a year? 
And what is considered a good hit rate? Yeah, so I must qualify. You know, I'm relatively new in the game. I've only started doing this since my own exit about two and a half years ago. And I think in the last two and a half years, my angel investment portfolio, I have about 30 odd investments. From a VCs, I have backed four VCs in the region, one in health tech, one in alternate protein, as I mentioned, one in consumer web and the other in B2B SaaS. And each of the VCs, they typically in each fund, they could have anywhere between 15 to 20 companies. But the VCs is basically I'm back the VC, it's a blind pool, and they are then investing in the industries or the markets that they are keen on. But from an angel investment perspective, my goal was to get to about 30, 35. I'm kind of there. And I think by the end of the year, I'll close my portfolio. And then I need to give them time because, you know, this is rather early stage. So my general thesis is I want to hold for three to five years. Of course, if any of the founders want to offer us exits, I'll consider it because again, truth be told, I haven't had any exit thus far. It's still early. So just to feel comfortable, if I just start getting back some money back, happy to kind of consider those. But I don't know about per year, but I think if you're looking to build a portfolio, 15 to 20 startups in two or three industries that you're comfortable in, you understand, have a liking for in one or two geographies, I think is a good basket to work on. I've been quite lucky myself. I think my first foray into venture capital investing exited within about two years. And then I've got another three live deals at the moment, and we've got one that's doing a very slow exit at the moment. So I think I'm expecting some reversion to the mean at some point soon. I'm sure my deal sizes are far smaller than your own. No, that's fantastic. At any point in time, I think as a as a venture investor, when you actually start seeing money coming back to the bank, I think it's exciting. I mean, if I look at my portfolio, two moments that gave me financial joy. One was when my late stage investment into Palantir came back with pretty good returns. I was overjoyed because that was the first time I enjoyed an exit. Uh, thereafter, in the pre-IPO markets, there have been decent exits with companies like UiPath or Blend Labs. But I think on the angel investments, I'm still waiting. Of course, just this year, I started dabbling into Bitcoin as well. And I was lucky. Again, it's a category that I'm still trying to figure out. I wasn't definitely one of the early backers. I've only started this year. But even within this year, things have doubled. And I've seen cash come back to my account, which is always a good feeling. It's good. Nothing like getting a bit of skin in the game just to build motivation and build your interest in understanding a sector better. Yeah, yeah I like it. I think you make a very good point that, you know, it's, it's not just about financial returns. The two other reasons why I do this, one is learning. There is no better way to learn this than putting your own money. No amount of shadow practice, no amount of books can ever give you that sentiment or the fear of losing money. <laughs> the lessons uh, come from there, isn't it? And also the network that you build. I mean, I've been really fortunate that through this, the kind of network one gets to build with founders, VCs, other investors, you know, the very fact that we're doing this, you know, probably stems from that as well. And I think that's really fortunate to be, be in that position to have that opportunity. I think one reason why many investors don't consider VC investing is that it's because they don't believe they have enough funds to do that. But I've seen some crowdfunding sites that allow people to invest smaller amounts of money. What do you think of these? No, you're right. I think in the last three, four years, it's become supremely accessible. I mean, be it the likes of AngelList, be it WeFund and their equivalents in, you know, in different parts of the market. In fact, even pre-IPO late stage deals through websites like EquityZen, SharePost, Forge, you can start anywhere between 5K and above, right? And that suddenly makes it accessible to a common normal person just to say, hey, you know what? I have a little bit of savings. Can I start putting some money every few months? In fact, I've started seeing that in Singapore and Southeast Asia where 
Yes, you may not be able to become a limited partner in a big VC because there you might need $200,000, dollars or depending on the regulation, you've got to be an accredited investor. So that's different, but you're absolutely right with these crowdfunding sites. That's one trend that I've seen. The other is unofficial syndicates. I personally am just part of literally 10 WhatsApp groups where literally a bunch of friends have come together saying, let's pull in money. Let's do a deal together. So suddenly if 10 friends put in 5K, you can suddenly uh, pull in about a decent 50K check and be one of the early stage backers. So yeah, very, very accessible off late. So it's one of the disadvantages of coming in with a smaller ticket size or perhaps through a crowdfunding opportunity is you might, if you're lucky, get access to the founders for a meeting, but not really an enduring relationship. And certainly you have no influence or the opportunity to get a board seat. So when you're pooling in your investable funds with friends, does that give you a bit more leverage, you think, in the relationship with the company? Yes, indeed. I think what really helps is if you can create that syndicate to kind of pool in money. So that gives you a little bit of negotiating power and then typically going through a special purpose vehicle, ASPV, and you nominate someone as your representative and he or she becomes a potential board member or advisor. And again, the idea is not to really control. The idea is just to have purview visibility and kind of be a sounding board for the founder. Let's face it, venture investing, angel investing is a very risky game. So I think it's only right that there is some amount of scrutiny, if you will, on how your money is being deployed. So should we come up the maturity curve a little bit and move away from VC and a bit closer to what happens as a company starts to get to the public phase of its life cycle? So I suppose over the last 18 months, we've seen the rise and fall of SPACs as one of the ways of getting access to the public market. And there are just a ton of SPAC filings right now how should a public market investor think about SPACs and whether something is a good opportunity, do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, SPACs have been around for a while, but if they've suddenly come into vogue the last couple of years, legendary investors like Chamath have made it a very, very popular vehicle. Uh, you know, it's, it's part of popular folklore right now. In Southeast Asia, they're playing a pretty critical role because one thing that people had been questioning the Southeast Asian startup ecosystem is where are the sizable exits? But today, if you look at Grab, which is the Uber equivalent of the entire region, if you look at property which is like a Zillow equivalent in this part of the world, they're all exiting via SPACs. So again, it's fairly new as far as I'm concerned. Honestly, a SPAC is nothing but a vehicle through which a company goes public in an easier way. It's a blank check vehicle that's raising money and then absorbing different startups. To me, I think I would look at it two ways. If I'm a new investor, I would firstly scrutinize and understand the people behind their credibility. So for example, in this part of the world, the SPAC that Property Guru is exiting through is backed by Richard Lee from Hong Kong and Peter Thiel. Now, of course, that inspires confidence because you know these are two legendary people, very well networked. Of course, I'm not saying that successful people can't fail. All I'm saying is the probability of success hopefully is higher given their backgrounds. I would also look at their documents and look at their thesis because many of these SPACs Yes, it's a blind pool, but some of them also have sidecar opportunities to look at specific opportunities. You also got to be very careful about the terms and conditions in terms of which markets, what are the options, you know, assuming they're unable to acquire companies, will that money be in an escrow? Will that money be returned? So I think it's important to be aware of those details. And at the same time, I think eventually, if possible, if you get a chance to have conversations with the SPAC owners, it's good to get a sense of which companies are they going after and then study those industry sectors. And if possible, 
possible, study those underlying assets. I think we want to avoid a situation like the subprime where you're blindly investing into a derivative tools which you don't understand too much about and you have no idea what the underlying assets are. Hence, if, as I mentioned earlier, I'm still a believer in backing specific companies and specific assets more than a group, a collective just for the sake of diversification or just for the sake of access. My conviction is more towards a company, a industry, a thesis rather than just putting in money into a blind pool. Yeah, I get the feeling that there's just too much hype around SPACs or just the word SPACs. And I believe just this week, the Hong Kong government has announced that they are evaluating the use of SPACs in Hong Kong as well. I think the danger is that people will just invest in them without actually knowing what they are investing in and pay these high valuations for things that they don't know about. No, you're right. I think any new shiny object, there is always that hype. I'm not really jumping around on SPACs, right? There was one opportunity, but I'm just playing the waiting game simply because of nothing else. But I want to spend time observing what happens. Also just reading and learning. I am new to it as well. But I don't want to just jump into it because a friend or a neighbor is doing it. To me, that wouldn't be doing justice. One interesting thing we do see in the markets is there seem to be a growing number of companies with an enormous private valuation. For example, Stripe, I think nearly $100 billion. You mentioned Elon's company, SpaceX earlier, you know, another huge private valuation. What do you think the reasons are for this? Why are some founders reticent or a bit slower perhaps in coming to the public market? Simply because in one line, there is a lot of money in the private markets today. For all the reasons that you just mentioned, retail investors today have cash. The big countries are minting cash. That money is coming into our accounts through quantitative easing policies, loan rates. So today, if there's a lot of cash, that cash is bound to find ways into various opportunities. And the other thing that we discussed is access to early stage investments. A, it's become a hot topic. B, it's become accessible. So suddenly there's a lot of excitement because every day you open the papers, there is a lot of conversations about sunicons, unicorns, big exits. So it's become part of popular media and it's become financially accessible. So if you look at these functions, if I'm a founder, there is very good reason to remain private because being a public listed company is a tough job. You are constantly scrutinized. If you look at the public markets, it doesn't necessarily always behave rationally. You could be growing your revenues, but it's so much about narrative and sentiment and your stock could be crashing because of reasons beyond your control. And if you as a CEO or a founder there, if your compensation is pegged to stock price, that's quite risky. So to me, you'll see more and more companies remain private for longer till the time there is private capital out there, which I think we are still in that phase where countries, despite of crises like pandemics or other financial crises, will come in, pump in cash and pump in capital. And I think till we are in that loop, till there is easy money in the markets, I think this is a trend that's going to continue. One effect of companies staying private longer and getting larger and larger valuations is that they get more well-known before becoming public. And that makes them more sought after at IPO. And because of this interest in their IPO, the stocks are priced quite highly. Do you think that retail investors are getting a bad deal with most IPOs? Yeah, this is a very, very good debate. I mean, two examples that come to mind recently is if I look at the Indian market, the two latest and the largest IPOs in India, there's one tech company called Zomato, which is your Uber Eats or your DoorDash. And then there is Paytm, which is Alipay backed India's largest fintech player. So if you look at them, they're going to be the largest IPOs of the country. Each of them are extremely high loss 
loss-making entities. And that's paradoxical, right? These companies are going all guns blazing on the public markets. If one has to go by Zomato, uh, Zomato had a, a fantastic upside when they went public. And I think that also shows the exuberance, the irrationality and the free cash available in the market, which does not necessarily reward profit-making companies. That narrative has also shifted into the public markets that we are looking for fast growth. We are looking for these new age tech toys that's going to grow very rapidly and make us money in the future. But once they are public, and my hypothesis is you can't keep playing that game for too long. Because at some point in time, the game has to stop. The buck has to stop somewhere. At some point, you got to turn profitable because otherwise, how will you sustain? You're no more a private company. So I think the narrative-driven privatization and private growth, yes, works very well in the early stage private journey. It will probably work quite well when these guys list. But if you look at the US markets, if you look at Uber, if you look at many of these new age tech companies that went public, I think very soon they lost their sheen, right? Because A, at some point you've got to make profit. B, time is a great leveler. You no more remain the new shiny toy. For every Uber, there was a lift, and for every lift, there was an affirm. And that's the nature of the industry we live in or life in general. You're not going to be young for too long. So I think, yes, probably companies will remain private for 10 to 12 years if they can, then find either strategic exits or SPACs or IPOs or private listings. And then they probably are buying themselves another three, four years compared to the usual IPO route for which they can stay private, get better valuations, and then use that time to hopefully hire professional management to turn these companies around. You've given us a ton of names over the course of our last hour of the chat, Prantic, but could I ask a bit of a cheeky question? And you mentioned the next shiny toy. Who are the next shiny toy private companies that you've got an eye on that perhaps are coming to the public market over the next 12 months? Well, if I look at my own portfolio, I think the ones that I am backing are the two names that you mentioned, Stripe, SpaceX. If I look at these two companies, right, and the valuations, it's obviously hard to justify the valuations on an Excel sheet. If I look at SpaceX, I think literally this is an earth-shattering company. This could change the course of life on Earth and another planet. You know, I'm a backer of Musk than just SpaceX, the company, because here comes one man who is after a success at PayPal. He's not looking at building another app that can make money transfer easier or another app that can help you get food cheaper or faster. He is fundamentally trying to use science to change the way. So even if that money goes down the drain, I'll be happy that it was in the pursuit of something meaningful, hopefully, and earth shattering. Stripe, I'm a believer, not just because of anything else, but I've just loved the way they have built their business bit by bit. With a small piece of code, these two Irish brothers, they have captured pretty much most industries across the world today use Stripe as their preferred payment gateway. There, I, I fundamentally believe, I don't know about the valuation, but I fundamentally believe that it's a strong, good business. And I think it's going to be a trillion dollar company at some point in time. You know, they, it'll follow the paths of the Apples and Googles and the Facebooks of the world. I definitely look at Stripe and SpaceX as two big bets in my portfolio. I think the other one, probably not at the same tier, but the one that recently went public, I think UiPath, that's done well. I think they're a market leader in what they do. The other two companies that I'm quite excited about, one has been around for about seven, eight years. It's in the space of sustainability. It's called Appeal, A-P-E-E-L. It's a scientific technology, as the name suggests, it's a peel. So it's a thin film that's transparent, that's applied on fruits and vegetables 
that basically helps them last longer and that reduces food wastage at a massive level. Of course, their roadmap has technologies to do x-rays of the fruit from within so that the farmer can make a judgment that this is a good apple, this is a average apple, this is a bad apple. So you throw the bad apple out, too bad, but you know what? I can use dynamic pricing to charge more for the high quality apple. So the yield as well as the price increases, right? So from a sustainability perspective, I think appeal is something I found very unique. And I'm also quite bullish on Eat Just. They've been doing pretty well for a while. I think their liquid eggs have done well. They have now shifted base to Singapore as headquarters. They are Tamasic back. So that makes it closer to home and closer to heart. So yeah, I, I would probably put Stripe and SpaceX right up there and followed by UiPath, Appeal and Eat Just. Yeah, I'm right about Eat Just last year. And I believe they're doing cultured chicken. Have they released that yet? In some markets. In some markets, they are still testing it. Yes, but that's right. That's their roadmap as well. So after catering to the egg problem, that's the next thing. So the impossibles of the world are, I think, now looking at pork after doing really well with beef. And now Eat Just is looking at chicken. Yeah, I'm really keen to try that cultured chicken. You should. In fact, in Singapore, there are a couple of companies, one's called Tindal. Their cultured chicken is really, really good. I've had it in the form of schnitzels. Pretty decent. There are a bunch of companies trying to solve for cultured seafood. There's a company called Shiok meat that are to solve for that. It'll take a while before it is commercially viable, uh, maybe in the next five, six years. But yeah, I genuinely see that my kid, by the time he grows up, this is going to be a very, very viable, tasty and a healthy option. There just has to be a day when we look back at eating animals and animal products in the same way as we used to look back at smoking or not wearing a seatbelt. It will seem a barbaric behavior, I think. That's certainly the trajectory of society. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I was just reading an Economist article yesterday, and I think the answer has been on the wall for a while, but it beautifully captured that compared to various other things such as coal, etc., consumption of beef by far is the largest contributor to the environment challenges that we have. So I think the writing's on the wall. It's really about technology, making it commercially viable, and of course, human perception. So I think, you know, our generation might take a bit of a while because we're all creatures of habit, but I think our kids' generation, they'll grow up with it, as you said. To them, it would be a no-brainer. Well, Albert has just completed a nutrition degree, and so he's been lecturing all of our friends about our bad nutrition habits over the years, where now he's able to do that from an accredited position, so we'll pay a bit more attention. Not all our friends, Luke, just you. One mouth at a time, that's all it takes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Prantik, that I'm really glad that you mentioned SpaceX because SpaceX is Luke's favorite company. So when you talked about it, at least we don't have to hear it from him again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I, I, I love watching each of their launches. And uh, in fact, you spoke about Twitter. I'm a big fan of the man on Twitter, whether he's talking space or he's talking crypto or whatever else. I mean, he's just a fascinating mind to just follow. What a revolutionary. I'm planning to head out to the East Coast of the US as soon as the borders open. I'd love to see a launch and landing live at Docs like such a vision of the future. Absolutely. And as you said at the top of the episode, right, if you can make money at the same time as doing good for society, then that's win-win. And I personally believe that SpaceX are likely to be the world's first $10 trillion company. Yeah, I would want to second that. And I think it's just when you look back, hopefully 20 years later, you want to be proud that, look, I backed a company. I'm sure it's minuscule, but I think the fact that someone's trying to figure out Hyperloop, someone's trying to figure out Starlink, someone's trying to figure out launches. I mean, the least we can do is be curious and support that because there are very few such minds who do this in the private sector. Of course, the NASA's of the world do it, but that's at a government level. They might have different agendas. What I love about Musk's vision is his vision has global impact. 
impacts, right? I mean, I'm seeing his conversations about hyperloops in Asia and India, where traffic, you know, in Asia, so many metropolis cities suffer from traffic problems. And if hyperloop actually becomes a reality, this could have a huge impact for lives, not just within the American soil, but pretty much in different parts of the world. Well, Prantik, that was fascinating. That was a really interesting chat. And just to close off, if listeners want to find out more about you, where could they find you online? The easiest way is LinkedIn. So if you can just look out for Prantik Mazumdar, search for Prantik Mazumdar on LinkedIn, and you'll find me, drop me a private message. Generally, probably would respond within a day or two. And yeah, that's the easiest way to connect. And then of course, if the conversation goes deeper, we can connect on WhatsApp and email. Fantastic. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. One of our best interviews. It's a privilege. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's always great to kind of just bounce off ideas and share perspectives from different parts of the world. And it's just great to learn. I had no idea that you're doing something in the nutrition field. And I had no idea that there's another interested soul in SpaceX. So really good to connect. And uh, thank you for the conversation. We look forward to continuing the conversation in the future, perhaps. Absolutely, Luke and Albert, wish you guys all the best. And likewise to all your audiences, stay invested. I think this is a great time to be not just a founder, but also an investor. And yeah, look out for interesting opportunities, as Luke said, not just for commercial reasons, but something that can be a force for good and force for growth. And Luke, I believe you have a quote for us. Uh, I do. We normally round out our episode with a quote. And perhaps this one brings us a little bit more back to earth. It's Peter Thiel reflecting on portfolio construction. And I noted he said several years ago, the biggest secret in venture capital is that the best investment in a successful fund equals or outperforms the rest of the fund combined. Phenomenal. I don't know if you guys have read the book Contrarian. We need to get my hands on it. It's a biography on Peter Thiel. And as the title suggests, it's just phenomenal. And I had no idea that the man was a lawyer, a Wall Street investor, a philosopher. You know, he, he did the whole PayPal thing. And then, of course, he has his own fund and he's backed companies like Facebook, Palantir, etc. He's gone into politics as well. Just like Musk, I think to me what's fascinating, it's these polymaths who are not just one-trick ponies. They're not just trying to solve one problem, but they have a perspective on life at large. So, yeah, that's a lovely quote indeed. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. If there's a future topic you'd like us to cover, you can message us on Twitter. I'm at Luke Telescope. And I'm at Albert Telescope. Or you can email us at feedback at telescopeinvesting.com. As we said at the top of the show, one of the best ways you can show support for the podcast is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have a friend who you think would also get value from Telescope Investing, we'd love it if you could take a quick moment now and spread the word and send them a link. Thanks, Luke. And thank you, Prantik. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great weekend ahead. Thanks, Prantik. The Telescope Investing Podcast is for general information and is not a recommendation to act. Please seek independent investment advice before entering into any financial transaction. Entering into any transaction that involves securities or derivatives puts your capital at risk. Luke and Albert are not regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority or the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, and the companies mentioned in this podcast may be held personally by them. They can't be held responsible or be liable for action taken by a listener. And, as ever, past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Thank you and happy investing.